your children, God. You are the same God. You are the same God. You answered prayers by then, and you will answer now. You are the same God. You are the same God. You were providing them. You are providing them. You are the same God. You are the And Job again took up his discourse and said, Oh, that I were as in months of old, as in the days when God watched over me, when his lamp shone upon my head, and by his light I walked through darkness, as I was in my prime, when my friendship of God was upon my tent, and the Almighty was yet with me, when my children were all around me, when my steps were washed with butter and the rock poured out for me streams of oil. Continuing on, Job 30, verse 20. I cry to you for help and you do not answer me. I stand and you look only at me. You have turned cruel to me. With the might of your hand, you persecute me. You lift me up to the wind, you make me ride on it, and you toss me about in the roar of the storm. For I know that you will bring me to death and the house appointed for all living. Yet does not one of the heap, one in a heap of ruin stretch out his hand and in his disaster cry out for help? Did not I weep for him whose day was hard was not my soul grieved for the needy? But when I hoped for good, evil came. And when I waited for light, darkness came. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you so much that we're able to be gathered here today. I thank you that despite our hardships, you give us only goodness. Lord, I pray that 
you would open up our hearts for the message today, Lord, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. And I just pray for, for Peter in the delivering of the word and that your anointing will be upon him. In Jesus' name, amen. Hello. How are you all doing this morning? Are we having a good summer? All right. Yeah, it's a little muggy, but I'm okay with that. I'm from Colorado, so I like the dry. Is anyone from Alberta? I, I have not been to Alberta, but I hear it's like Colorado. Um, Montreal's like just way too wet for me sometimes. <laughs> um, hold on, let me just adjust my mic as I get ready. All right. Is that good? I don't want to like spray air at you guys, so we'll, we'll see if I can adjust that microphone. Um, let me just pray again that our hearts would be aligned and uh, receptive to what God has for us today. Heavenly Father, thank you for church. Thank you that we can come together, open up the word, and hear from you. Would you increase and would I decrease that we might hear from you today. Uh, I pray for those who are actively suffering right now through all kinds of hardship. Would they know that you are near and close to them? And I pray for us as we walk through Job, um, would you help us to understand what's going on? Uh, we praise you as one who is willing to dive into the mess with us here on earth yet you also offer us hope. Would you make that alive to us today? Amen. So we've been going through um, the book of Job, and if this is your first time at Church 21, I really encourage you to uh, look back at the past sermons that we have online so you can get caught up today. Today we're going through chapters 29, 30, and 31. And the way I want to start uh, today is talking about a musical, Fiddler on the Roof. It has to be my, my favorite musical. Um, and in it, the main character's name is Reptevia. Okay, you should have seen this musical by now if you haven't. And so the main character is this poor milkman. He's, he's Jewish and he has this beautiful faith where he, he prays to God all the time. He's talking to him and he kind of talks to him like this really loudly. Um, and his story... Uh, the Fiddler on the Roof story is kind of this rags-to-rags story, right? It's not a rags-to-riches story. And throughout the movie uh, or, or the musical, whichever you've seen, it's kind of him going through life experience after life experience. And whatever comes his way is how he understands whether God hears him and approves of him or disapproves of him. And it's sort of like when hardship comes, he goes, why, God? Why, why would this come my way? And then when he gets this glimmer of hope, and for him that, that might be riches or, or his daughter marrying someone uh, wealthy, he goes, ah, see, God's hearing me. I have approval with God. And at the beginning, he sings this song, If I Were a Wealthy Man. Right? And he says, if I, if I were a rich man, I'd, I'd build a big, tall house 
with rooms by the dozen right in the middle of town, a fine tin roof with real wooden floors below. There would be one long staircase just going up and one even longer going down and one more leading nowhere just for show. So this is kind of his vision of what it means to be rich. But he builds on this and talks about being honorable next. Most important of all, he says, the most important men in town would come to fawn on me. They would ask me to advise them like King Solomon. And he says, if you please, Reptevia. Other people would say, pardon me, Reptevia. Posing problems that would cross a rabbi's eyes. He wants to be this guy, the go-to guy with all wisdom. And he points to wealth as what's going to get him there. And then most tenderly, he desires this. He says, if I were rich, I'd have the time I lack to sit in synagogue and pray and maybe have a seat by the Eastern Wall. I'd discuss the holy books with the learned men several hours every day, and that would be the sweetest thing of all. What Reptevia is pointing out is that he's in poverty and he's suffering in a certain way that is limiting his freedom. If he had the freedom, he would do these things. He wants the ability to be honored, respected in town, the one everyone goes to. And he wants riches so that he can have a good spiritual life. Now, in Old Testament times, to be wealthy wasn't merely just having money. That's kind of a modern way of understanding who is rich. We go, oh, he has money. Like, wow, look at him. Old Testament people would be a little confused. They'd be like, well, he's a jerk. I know he has money, but he's like, no one respects him in town. To be wealthy meant much more. It meant to be honored, respected. People thought well of you. Now, Job was a wealthy man. Job had sons, he had daughters, he had cattle, livestock, and he was well-respected and influential in town. And that is to say that he had honor. So Reptevia, from Fiddler on the Roof, is poor and struggles with being poor and points to God and says, I know you're all-powerful and loving, yet he ends his song with this, Lord, who made the lion and the lamb, you decreed, what, uh, uh, you decreed I should be what I am. Would it spoil some vast eternal plan if I were a wealthy man? You can see how Reptevia is really trying to find some relief from his suffering. And yet Job came from this wealth. Not only wealth, he had honor. And he fell so low. That is a time to question what is really real? What really counts? What's a solid foundation to stand on when we suffer? And this all comes back to our experience of life, doesn't it? Reptevia and Job rightly point to God. They see him as in control. Yet, they kind of have a problem with how they connect life experience with God's approval. And we're going to look into that today. 
is God looking down on Job with disapproving looks because of what he's going through? If yes, then Job needs to do something in return to change the way his life is going. If not, he needs to call on the Lord and hear a response to him. So today we're going through three chapters of Job, like I said, chapters 29 to 30. In chapter 29, Job looks back at his life, and I welcome you to open up your Bible apps or whatever you have. We're going to be looking um, primarily at chapter 29 for a while, but he, he looks back at his life. He laments for the past when his life was good in his own eyes. He was living up to the standard of those around him and those for himself. Then in chapter 30, he looks at what's around him, and he laments what he has become in the eyes of others, the way you guys see me. The eyes of others. Then in chapter 31, he looks up. He turns his case to God and hands his life over to the judge, the only one capable of looking at his life to determine what it is. So Job looks back at himself, then he looks around, and then he looks up. So if you've been reading Job on your own, you have seen Job's friends. Um, They've stood up and given their their ideas about what they believe Job has, has done to receive such a tragic blow in life. It's like we have a bunch of doctors examining Job with no bedside manner whatsoever. And um, they might mean well, they might mean ill, I, I don't really know, it's not clear to me, but they're doing more harm than good, right? So it's like making Job's life worse. He's like, thanks a lot. Uh, and so these doctors would probably be sued for malpractice at some point. Um, but Job amidst them, says that despite this suffering and loss, um, this is going back to Job chapter 19, 25 to 26, he says, for I know that my Redeemer lives, and at last he will stand upon the earth, and after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. So Job holds on to the central hope, I would call this a resurrection hope. He's saying life is like this right now, I've seen people behind me live and die. One day I will die too, yet I will see God in my own flesh. That is his resurrection hope that he he holds to. Now he has doubts and struggles, but um, this is what he he looks forward to. In, in, um, In Numbers chapter 6, verses 24 to 26, If you're going to memorize anything from the Old Testament, this is one of those pieces of scripture that's a prayer. It's called the priestly prayer. If you come to the, the pastor of the day, you're like, pray for me. Just pray a blessing on my life. It is this. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. So in Job's Resurrection hope, he says that one day I will see God. And what this prayer is saying is that I hope, my prayer for you is that God would look on you and his face would light up. 
Now, this, may the Lord's face shine on you, it's uh, the English translation trying to grasp at what it means for God's face to light up when he sees you. What that means is um, uh, if, if you see a baby and you look at this baby and his big eyes open up and you just go, oh, what a cute baby. Or you go to your friend's house who just got a puppy and the puppy just kind of like comes to the door and sees you. You just kind of like brighten up, right? So for God's face to shine on you is like he naturally loves you. He just can't help but smile when he sees your face. So in prayer, you pray, hey God, good morning. And just all of a sudden you're like, God's face just lights up. There's my child. Yet suffering can confuse this. Does God frown on me when I'm going through suffering? Is that what is, that what is going on? So Job and us, above all, what we need to care about is life is temporary. God is forever. And Job says, I want to know him. I want that more than anything else. Job, he knows that riches come and go, but ultimately what matters is to be favored by God. So some of us might have wealth today, or we might be poor today. We might have kids or no kids. Single, married, dating, going well, going poorly. What matters is that we are favored by God. And suffering can feel like God's disapproval. Well, let's jump into Job and see what he has for us today. Job 29, verses 2 to 6. Job looks back at his life when life was good. Verse 2. How long for... Uh, How I long for the months gone by, for, for the days when God watched over me, when his lamp shone on my head and my light, and his light I walked, and by his light I walked through darkness. Oh, for the days when I was in my prime, when God's intimate friendship blessed my house, when the Almighty was with me, still with me, and my children were around me, when my path was drenched with cream. And the rock poured out with streams of olive oil. Job remembers a time when God was not silent. And he could feel God's presence. He also enjoyed good things. Children, good food, in abundance. It seemed like things aligned. A good relationship with God and good things. That's a pretty good equation. Good equals good. People respected him and he did good things with his power his position, his reputation. So if you've been here at Church 21 for a while, he used his time, talent, and treasure. He was doing all the things. He was leading a city group, and they all loved it. He had a change group, and people were like floored by his wisdom. They'd be like, wow, that was deep. Mic drop. Okay, so he's doing all the things. Yet, um, uh, oh, oh, oh. There's, there's this really good part I want to read. Uh, verse 21 and on, he says, People listen to me expect- expectantly, waiting in silence for my counsel. Do you ever wish to be that person? Uh, like, 
I think a confession of every pastor is like, this is what, when they look in the mirror, this is their like, okay, tiger, you're a tiger. Um, you're, you're like Job right now. After I had spoken, they spoke no more. Ooh, that's nice. Um, word, my words fell gently on their ears. They waited for me as for showers and drank up my words as spring rain. When I smiled at them, they scarcely believe it. The light of my face was precious to them. I chose the way for them and sat as their chief. I dwelt as a king among the, his troops. I was like one who comforts mourners. So he's using his time, talent, and treasure to bless others. And he seems pretty wise. These are good things. Now, I thought I would find a Job that kind of messed up here when times were good. I was looking for someone who enjoyed God's blessings but used them selfishly and needed to kind of come back to what he was doing. But Job did well. He remembered God. He, he remembered his children. He was all about social justice in the community. So what I found when I was reading scripture was, oh, I was trying to read in something. What was I trying to read into scripture? I was looking for where Job went wrong. I was looking for the reason why God was teaching him this lesson. And when we suffer, when there seems to be an injustice in our life, we can look for a cause or a reason, kind of like uh, billiards or playing pool. It's like the cue ball hits the 11 ball, which hits the eight ball, and it's like bonk. Uh, I can just draw like this linear equation to what's going on in my life, cause and effect. And you know, Job too assumed that he knew where his life was going I think it's 18, verse 18. Yes, 18. Um, he says this, I thought I would die in my own house. My, day, my days as numerous as the grains of sand. My roots will reach the, uh, to the water and the dew will lie all night on my branches, meaning like life's good. My glory will not fade and my bow will ever be in my hand. Like his strength will never end. Job thought he knew the cause and effect equation. And those around him thought the same. Well, I understand. I, I don't blame him for thinking that. Why wouldn't he think that? Yet, it looks to me like Job is meeting every standard he has for himself. Not only that, he's meeting the standard that those around him have. And he's like, man, you're just checking the boxes. 10 out of 10, 10 out of 10. So he has this self-approval, and he has approval of others, but then... You know, like, the suffering comes. And he's got to really look back at things. What's going on here? Well, have you ever been nostalgic for the good days like Job in chapter 29? You look back at times past. Was there ever a time in your life that you would consider your prime? What was it like for you, if you can think of those moments? And really, why would you call those your good days, your good days? Well, for me, one of those moments um, that I was thinking of was just summer vacation. Um, I, had, I had two times in my life. School, not school. And so there are times in my life when I go, oh, for the days that were more simple, when 
I had no stress during summer vacation. And then I felt God's curse on me when school started in September. Uh, maybe you can relate to that. But what for you are the, the prime days of your life? And how do you read into what you're going through now? But the truth is, today is a good day because God is alive and he's actively working in your life. All things for your good. Even the tough stuff. Even when the enemy comes to seek and destroy, only God is the one who can turn that around on its head and bring life out of it. God is sovereign above evil and chaos. And we see that in the arc of what Job, uh, Job's life here is. And maybe for you, the good days are those days you felt close to God. Everything seemed straightforward to you, and it was clear to you. When it seemed like obeying God was easier, or when, when the family was still intact, or when finances were better, or life was looking up, the world was your oyster. But now you have questions. You feel God is silent. You have unresolved parts of your life. What we need to remember is that Job starts out with uh, the throne room of God. And he says to Satan, have you ever considered my servant Job? From the very beginning, God favors Job. He thinks highly of him. And what Job is going through is confusing from his point of view, Job's point of view. So could it be that this is an opportunity for you? The circumstances that you have right now, not what they used to be in your prime, not what they should be that you say they should, not what you wish they were, not what they are tomorrow and the plans you have to make right what is now, but just today, where you are right now, and not, not the person next to you either, just you. Those experiences. Now, if I could ask, I have a, a slide here for us to look at. Um, this, this might be um, helpful for you in understanding what's going on. So we believe that this is actually where God wants to enter into our lives, the circumstances that we're in right now. Is it possible that you and I just can't see the whole picture for what's going on? Now, we're going to have a slide to show, and uh, this exercise, oh, All right, Uh, that's okay. Um, There, uh, you can check this on your phone later because it'll actually work better on your phone. Um, You and I actually have a a natural blind spot. Um, The way your eye and my eye is constructed is we have a blood vessel that uh, restricts a small area of vision for each one of our eyes. And there's a way to see this, so you can look it up. It'll be fun. Don't do it now. Pay attention to me. But um, what, it, what it shows is if you focus on one side of this picture, uh, the dot on the other side will disappear. And the point is this, that you and I have a blind spot, and we go through life not seeing the full picture. 
Now, Job in uh, verses 2 to 6 has some interesting language here. If you'll come back to for, uh, chapter 29, verse 2 to 6, he says um, he, he longs for the days when he had friendship with God. Okay, that, sh- that should... <laughs> Thank you, Simon. I'm glad you're, you're looking at that. Um, so uh, he, he looks back at his life and he says, Oh, I wish for the days when I was friends with God. And he says, oh, I wish for the days when God watched over me. So this is pointing out the blind spot for Job. Um, His experiences can be his blind spot. Now, I want to uh, take a moment to just look at this, this chunk of Scripture that we don't read Job in isolation with the rest of Scripture. And we look at how he's saying this to know what's going on. Is this a biblical truth that God would not be your friend, that God would not watch over you, especially if you profess Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Well, the answer is you look at all of Scripture and it's no. What we have here is a genre of lament. Job is feeling free to vent his pain and concern to God. So we don't take this as a fact, like Job's teaching us, God doesn't watch over you when you're suffering. No, it's actually, uh, we can be like Job and say, God, this is how I feel right now. Now, it may be that um, Job does believe this, but we know that's wrong. You can look all over scripture. Um, Psalm 139 is a great one. You can read that later, which shows like, God is there when you're born. He's hemmed you in. He knows you high or low. God looks on you all the time. So we know that's not true. But it can feel like God has run out of favor for me. And it can feel like God is against me. So this is what I'd call a theology of experience. Another way of saying just how I believe God works and how I believe the world works. And it's not wrong to have a theology of experience. Um, When we ask, uh, we just had some baptisms. Um, And when we ask you uh, if you'd like to get baptized, one thing that we want to know is that you've personally experienced Jesus as your Lord and Savior. We'll say, do you know him? The only way you can say yes is if you've personally experienced that just somehow, some way, I know Jesus knows me. And somehow, some way, I know him. So experience is good. But the danger is that experience can be the loudest voice in the room, especially when we're suffering. What about you? What is your theology of experience? Is it too loud? Is it the only voice in the room? The way we safeguard ourselves from this is we keep reading scripture. We keep coming to church on Sundays. We read scripture in community with other people. So that would be your change groups. Um... This book is full of encouragement, and if you're not looking at it, you're missing out on the biblical truth that God wants to speak into your life. 
So every day we're supposed to check in with God, check in with the word, and compare our experiences with it. It's a two-way conversation, but sometimes when we make experiences the loudest voice in the room, it's kind of a one-way conversation. Perhaps like Reptavia, it seems like he just keeps calling out, calling out, if I was a wealthy man, if I was a wealthy man, and he just can't hear anything in return. But maybe there are some truths that he needs to hold on to. For instance, I just picked one of many verses. This, is, this could be your verse. Psalm 145, verse 17 to 18. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and faithful in all he does. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. Our faith is not at war with our experience. Experience is not at war with knowing. Scripture helps me align my life, what's going on in my world, with what's going on in God's kingdom. So we may look at uh, Job's life and be confused why he deserves this tragedy in his life. And when we suffer, we look for what we did wrong to deserve this and likely question, you know, does God care? Or we might believe some incorrect things like, God is incapable of stepping in in my life. You know what? He just sort of, I know, he, I know he's sort of over things, but he, he can't see me. I'm too little. We might believe that. Now, if Job 29 was about uh, Job's good life, his prime, and how he was honored, then, uh, then chapter 30 is about how despised Job has become. I had a, a British friend, and we were uh, just discussing language. I don't know if British and Americans, we like talk about language all the time. Maybe it's the same as like Quebecois French and if you're from France. Um, and we had this conversation about, I mean, they, they, they wanted to talk about the words trash and garbage, because apparently they use different words. And they were like, what do you think's more insulting to say to someone? You are trash or you are garbage? And they would just say, you are trash. You are garbage. And that was the conversation. And um, maybe it's like dechette and poubelle, but I find like poubelle like a mushroom. So like I, that would be okay with me. You can call me poubelle. But dechette sounds worse, like just discard, whatever. Anyway, in chapter 30... The refuse of the village, the despised, the dishonorable people now treat Job like he's garbage. He's the trash of town. In Job chapter 30, he says, they detest me. They keep their distance. They do not hesitate to spit in my face. Verse 1 uh, of 30, he says, but now they mock me. Men younger than I, whose fathers I would have disdained to put with my sheepdogs. Okay? So, how high was Job respected in town and how low he has become? Just the lowliest of town now think he's even lower than them. Okay? That's how far he fell. Um, So, there is sort of this circular logic that Job is experiencing in town. People see him and go... You used to be honored, wealthy, and now 
you lost it all. Therefore, you did something wrong. Therefore, you are dis, uh, deserving of my disrespect. And the opposite of honor is like to be despised. So like I actively just treat you as nothing. Trash, garbage, refuse, dishet, all of it. So um, if Job was meeting all the standards around him for himself, and then this would be incredibly humbling. This would be confusing. And there's sort of a breakdown of how life works. So where can Job go? What can he do? Who has the ability to clear his name? If Job is innocent of all that's happened to him, where can he go? Well, he can't go to himself. I mean, he was at the tippy top. And now he, he doesn't have all that honor and leverage to do anything. And if he looks to the other people in town, well, they've already discarded him. Where can Job go? In the eyes of others, Job has been found a disgrace. In Job's confusion, he looks back at his life for where he went wrong. What did he not do to live up to these standards? In his tunnel vision, he's searching, he's fixating, he's groping for where did I go wrong? What did I do? But his tunnel vision is exposing what he believes in. And suffering can really be a place that distorts our vision, right? We saw that Job does believe in resurrection hope, yet he's also kind of searching his life going, what did I do to be deserving of this? We all look for validation, don't we? But where we look for validation is our Savior. Where we look for validation is going to be our Savior. And I have kind of two categories for us to understand that, and that is standards and the eyes. Now, standards could be many things. It's basically, when you hit this milestone, you feel good. And maybe too good. You know what I mean? Like, you look back at the week and go, this was a good week because I hit my milestones. And you're like, yeah, but did you check in with God at all? What were these other things in your... Or maybe that was your check-in. You use that Bible app and it's like, you hit 30 days in a row. You checked the Bible so many times. Good for you. It's a standard, right? Um, maybe for you, it's, it's things like life pace. Okay, so you like, you graduated high school. You made it through college, university. Um, now you got to get the job in three years and then hit manager by eight. And, or whatever it is. Uh, what side of town you live. Where you rent. Uh, these are standards we have. If you're in school right now, you're like, I need this kind of GPA. And if I don't hit it, I'm going to be anxious the rest of the semester or next semester. And if I, if, if I hit it, I'm going to feel good. I'm doing my job. That's our standards. And those can become nasty saviors. Or 
we look for approval in the eyes of ourselves or the eyes of others. Who's setting the tone for what's good in life and what's worth living for? This can be a coach. Maybe that coach was from when you were eight to 10 years old playing soccer somewhere, but that voice is still telling you and driving you in how you live your life. Uh, a lot of us have parents that we just sort of uh, don't know that we've just appropriated. They are the strong voice in our life above God. Yet we need to be looking at scripture to see what God says about us and how to get approval from him. Eyes are influential, and these eyes can validate us. Might even be social media for you. So who Job's savior is matters. Disapproved and failed, Job needs a savior. If Job's savior is himself, the others around him, or the others around him, then he needs to work double time. He needs to start a campaign to get back on his feet in the community. He needs to start picking up trash on the highway. He needs to start volunteering at the homeless shelter. He needs to go vegetarian. He's got to do something to hit these standards, whatever it is. If we are doing these things as a source of validation or justification, as a way to be approved, a way to succeed in life, we are treating these things as a standard, as our savior. To illustrate this further, um, a, a movie recently came out called King Richard. Uh, raise your hand if you've seen it. It's with Will Smith. It's really good. Uh, you should see it. It's, um, Will Smith plays uh, Richard Williams, and he raises two daughters. It's a true story about Venus and Serena Williams. Now, you must have heard of them, right? Okay, heads nodding. Good. You have been watching sports for at least <laughs> the last 30 years or something like that. So at some point in the movie, um, Richard is driving them home in his Volkswagen. And man, this guy has grit. Uh, they're in a bad part of town, and um, he's not exactly like this strong guy. He's, he wouldn't be the popular kid in school when he was in school. Uh, he's not cool on the streets or anything like that. And he's beaten down by some local gangsters, and he just kind of takes it. And um, it's this beautiful picture of a father standing up for his children. But as he's driving home in the car, the kids are just silent. They're like, oh, man, Dad, you just went through something really terrible. And he says, girls, listen. Listen up. The world has no respect for Richard. It never has. But the world is going to respect y'all. It's his drive. This is where he wants life to go. The world has rejected Richard. In the world's eyes, he was not beautiful. He was not successful. He was a poor black guy out of Compton, L.A. Disapproved failure. But he had a plan. His plan was his two daughters. His two daughters would gain the success and approval of the world. Through Venus and Serena he'd meet the world's standards. Then, having met the world's standards, what would he get? Approval. Look at me. Look at the plan I did. Look how great I am. So he would do this through tennis. Serena and Venus Williams were his savior. And he got it. He got the world's approval. 
But what did that do? It just kind of left him with his own pride, puffed up. He was seeking out the people that had disqualified him to validate him. Okay, do you get this? This is not freedom. It's all playing the same game. And suffering is this opportunity for us to see the standards and the eyes of approval that will fail us. And God wants to set us free from these standards and rules that we set up to be validated. He wants us to know that there is nothing with that power out there. Whatever you think it is will trap you. It will become your bondage. Yet God wants to release you. Many times, uh, there are many types of suffering, but one um, that might be self-imposed is following these standards, looking to these things. So we need a true savior. And in, in some ways, Job is this picture of what God was going to do and what he was going to allow to happen to his own son. God's, God's son was perfect. If God the Father asked his son to do something, he would do it. He wanted the Father's approval. But the confusing thing was, when the Son of God came into earth, you'd think everyone would have recognized him immediately. That's the king of the universe. That's the creator. But the way this king came was humble. And what he did was service. And the path he took was suffering to the cross. It didn't make sense. It was confusing. It wasn't like King Richard. King Richard had plans to make superstars, yet this superstar actually came to suffer. And the punishment he bore was like nothing else. It stretched beyond time and space to all of, all of the universe, behind him and before him. Luke chapter 23, verse 35. This is a little bit of the, the crucifixion that our king suffered. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Jesus, people knew that, people had, uh, that Jesus had healed others. He had the power. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was, uh, there was a written notice above him, which read, like sarcastically, yet ironically it's true, this is the king of the Jews. Look at him. He's naked, beaten, weak, dying, drowning in his own fluid at this point. This is your king. One of the criminals who hung there, there was two criminals, one next to him on the right and on the left. One of the, the criminals insulted him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him saying, don't you fear God? He said, since you are under the same sentence, we are punished justly for what we are getting, for the deeds we deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. 
Then Jesus said, uh, then this criminal said to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered, truly, I tell you, today you will be in, uh, with me in paradise. The circumstances that we have today are where God wants to meet you. Now, there was this prophet in the Old Testament, Isaiah, and he was pointing to this person that uh, was to come. And Jesus identified himself as this confusing king called the suffering servant. Isaiah 53, verse 2 to 6 says this, He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Is that someone that you need today? Someone who's familiar with suffering and pain? Like one from whom people hid their faces, he was despised. I mean, you saw when they looked at him on the cross, they're like, this can't be a king. I don't want this to be my king. It's despicable. And we held him in low esteem. Verse 4 says this, Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. That was Jesus taking on the suffering that we deserve. There is suffering in this world. There is pain. There is chaos. There is evil. And ultimately, God met it face on. He sent his son for this. Yet we considered him punished by God. I want a king that's strong, that's handsome, that does not suffer, who is not weak, who's not embarrassing, who's not trash. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. That means sin. The punishment that, uh, the punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. What was Jesus doing on that cross? And what did Job need as resurrection hope? He he needed someone to ultimately take on life. Someone who could take on his messy life and face death head on. And the reality is, verse 6, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us have turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the sin of us all. We were all, we are all criminals. We've all fallen out of God's favor. Romans 5 verse 6 says this, you see at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. That's you and me. You see, there's this evidence in our life that we want to rebel against God. We make standards and then try to meet those standards. We want to justify ourselves all the time in every way. We're so weak to this. We look to the eyes of others to tell us we're approved. We struggle to look to God to get his approval, to believe it. Our salvation is not based on meeting the standards or the eyes of others or ourselves. It's a gift. Romans 5, 6 says, just at the right time when we were still powerless. So it wasn't when you hit all the standards and you were hitting the Bible app every day, you got 30 days in a row, then he saved you. 
No, it was when you were powerless to sin that he came. Why? So that his salvation would be a gift. You didn't do anything to deserve it. He's not asking you to do something except turn to him, believe on him, that he is the standard that you need. He took your place where you failed, and he wants to look on you with favor today. That's my savior, and it's a gift. I didn't do anything to deserve it, so I don't get trapped in these standards and eyes of others. So how is it that Job, this great man, could fall so low, yet still pray to God? What does it take for someone to pray for the Lord's will to be done in their life, especially when life is not going well? If it is the best action we can do, if it's the right thing we can do, it would mean that God is worthy and capable of handling our situation, that he's worthy to turn to in our time of suffering. Amidst it all, Job found God worthy to turn to in his immense suffering and in his lowly place. In Job uh, chapter 31, Job ignores his friends and those accusing him on the streets. And he turns his case to God. He welcomes God into the picture. And that's a model that we can follow. He asks God to examine him in every detail. If you look at um, chapter 31, I'm not going to read it all. But he says, you know, if I have done this, if I have done that, then hold me accountable. And he's not saying, like, God, I met every standard um, so that I deserve um, your salvation. What he's saying is, Lord, I know you are my God, and I will face you one day. I know that so well. I want to know, am I doing something wrong here? If this suffering is some kind of mercy on my life so that I could become more yours, I want to know. Now, some of our suffering might be because we've mu- we're, we're kind of knuckleheads or we can make bad decisions in life. And that can be a mercy on you to go, oh, bad choice, you know, like the stove was hot, burned my hand, not, let's not do that again. Okay, that's, uh, that's what I'd call a mercy. Um, But Job's going through something uh, much different. It's just, he's suffering, and he didn't do anything to deserve it. Yet this is the person that God chose to go through it. Job needs a savior. Job needs a judge. And he finds God worthy and necessary. In verse, uh, chapter 31, 4 to 8, he says this. Does he not see my ways and count every step? If I have walked with falsehood or my foot has hurried after deceit, let God weigh me in honest scales and he will know that I am blessed, uh, blameless. If my steps have turned from the path, if my heart has been led by my eyes or if my hands have been defiled, then may others eat what I have sown and my crops be uprooted. What he's saying is, God, examine me and be my judge according to your word. And he just lays it before the Father. And we're always welcome to do that when life is good and when life is not so good. And then he lets God be judge. Now, this isn't like a made-up thing where 
you're like sneaky on the down low, like validating yourself, and you're like, I don't listen to anybody. I just let God be my judge. It's not that. No, he, he wants God. He's inviting God to act in his life, move in his life powerfully. And he's saying, I need to lay down my standards, my expectations, and look to God. Look at his gift. He was the one that brought me into this world. I never decided that. He gave me life. He entered this world so that I might know him as Lord. Is that a message for you today? How many standards do you need to let go of, and whose eyes do you need to cast down? In the New Testament, there's this guy named Paul, who was Jewish, and then he became a Christian, still remained Jewish, he was just now believed Christ was the Messiah, and followed his way. And he found this freedom in the suffering. Can you imagine that? We always think of suffering as what's limiting our freedom, and everyone's trying to escape it today. Suicide, drugs, sex, work, fun things, golf, food, travel, sushi. I could go on, right? We're trying to escape suffering. And yet, when suffering comes, nothing works, does it? I know people that are so free by the world's standards. They literally, like, work on the beach and earn way more money than me somewhere in the world, and then they get bored of that beach, and then they go to somewhere else cool in the world. But they're unhappy, and nothing's working for them. They can't escape the suffering. And that's, that's a mercy, I think, in this case. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 4, Paul tells us about this secret he's learned. He says, if someone thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, i.e. standards, if he's like, if someone's hit all the standards for uh, religiosity, it would be me. I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. In regard to the law, I was a Pharisee. As for zeal, I persecuted the church. As for righteousness, based on the law, faultless. I checked all the boxes. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider lost for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, Jesus my Lord. For whose sake I have lost all things, I consider them garbage, that I may know, um, that I may know his grace, that not only does Christ take our place as a suffering servant, but he invites us into this life and into this walk. I want to know Christ, and I want to be known by him. Is it possible that Christians can suffer, yet do it gladly? 1 Peter um, chapter 3, the Christian community is suffering. And he says this. Hold, hold on, let me get there. 1 Peter, there he is. Hey, my brother. All right. Um, chapter 3, verse 12. 
For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And he encourages this community with this. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone um, who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, that resurrection hope. But do this with gentleness and respect. Keep a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against you and your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. So he's saying, don't be a knucklehead and suffer and be like, oh, you know, my Lord, I'm suffering. He's saying, no, live an upright life and you still might suffer, but you're going to do it for me. And people, people are going to see it. For Christ, verse 18, for Christ also suffered once for all sins, the, right, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. So when we suffer, we get tunnel vision. We can't see the whole picture. We check our blind spots, but can't see it. We look at our experiences and read into them. But there's an invitation for you to know Christ as Lord today. And it makes us a pleasing evidence and a case study for our friends to know who Christ is and those who are still enemies to God. Become the evidence your friends need. If you don't know God, the circumstances that you're in right now today are for you so that you might turn to him and know that he wants his face to light up when he sees you. Jesus knows pain and disgrace. He knows the, lo the loneliness. Our God is a humble king. So if you feel like God is so distant from you and doesn't care, just look on Christ, the suffering servant that wants to know you today. And whatever your circumstances are, just know that you can always turn your case to God. He's a gentle master and rest on his mercy. Please let go of the approval and the standards that you've set for yourself and those that have set them for you and turn to him, to his face. May the Lord bless you and keep you, and may his face shine upon you today. Let's pray. God, I pray for those here today, and I lift them up to you. I lift them up to you in all circumstances, in all places, that um, you are the one that sees them and knows them, it was your idea to create them and place them in Montreal. I thank you for them. Lord, I pray for your children here today, that they would look up to you and see your face light up. I pray for those who feel like God is far away, that they would hold on to the truth, that they would trust your word, that you are doing a good work in them. Lord, we confess that we just can't see it all. We can't understand it all, and we need to walk by faith. 
Holy Spirit, would you come and encourage us that we might walk by faith today? Amen.